Good morning, everyone. I guess I'm in. Um, Pastor Ed is uh, in Israel with, yeah, we could, sure, why not? Okay, it's always good to clap for him when he can't hear it. That's always good for him. Um, so uh, I'm John Malella. I'm one of the elders here at uh, Gateway Community. So uh, you, uh, since the A team is in Israel, you have the B team today. So, okay. Wow, what did they put in your cereal? That is something else. All right. Uh, so several weeks ago, um, this was all over the news. We heard uh, the story of a, a helicopter crash in Southern California. And as uh, the news got out, uh, the world was shocked to hear that Kobe Bryant, uh, Kobe, his daughter, and... Uh, uh, staff and friends uh, were in that helicopter crash, and uh, the news came out that nine people had died. Anyone that follows professional basketball knew that uh, Kobe, one of the greatest all-time NBA greats, uh, and immediately Twitter exploded with disbelief. Kobe, how, how can this be? You're only 41, and your daughter, whole life ahead of her, was only 13, how can this be, Mamba? That was his court name. And gradually it sunk in that, yes, Kobe, Kobe was gone, along with his daughter and friends and staff. In a world where uh, it seems that we talk about everything, that there's no privacy, that the, the deepest, darkest details of our lives are posted daily in various media. How is it that we don't talk about death? Why do we talk so little about death? For something that will, it will certainly touch us all eventually, why are we so reluctant to bring it up? It, it seems like we're almost allergic to death talk. And if you don't believe me, um, here's an experiment you can try. So this is especially for you guys who may get dragged to parties and get-togethers that you'd rather not be there. Try this the next time this happens. So and during these get-togethers that you don't really want to be there at, try this during a quiet moment. Um, so everybody, how do you feel about your impending death? I guarantee you will not be invited back. Some of you are probably writing that down. Well, that's a good one. I'm going to use that. We don't like to talk about it. Maybe one reason we don't uh, talk about it is we think, you know what, I'll deal with that when I have to, right? I mean, I'm, I want to be a positive person. I don't want to dwell on negativity. Why should I look at something that I, I don't have? It's not right in front of me. Isn't that kind of morbid to focus on death? I want to keep it light and funny. But I'll say this. I don't think that view is honest, and it's not just because death is inevitable, but really for us, it seems that uh, death is much more part of our lives than we think. Now, think of all the daily things we do, almost like as a death avoidance, right? We wear seatbelts. Okay, some of you think, well, we do that because we don't want to get tickets. Yeah, but ultimately, why is that in place for our safety and to avoid death? I wear a helmet when I ride a bike. And those of you that have ever seen me in my bike outfit, you know it's not to look cool. I use that to protect my head if I take a tumble uh, so I don't die. 
All the other things we do, the meds we take, cholesterol meds and for our kidneys, the vitamins we take, all of that really isn't it to avoid or postpone death. It's woven into our lives. And here's what I think is an interesting point. It's also woven into our, um, our motivations, our accomplishments, and our pleasures. It's woven into our motivations, our accomplishments, and our pleasures. Um, let me quote you from the, the writer of Ecclesiastes. Um, it's, a, it's an odd book, really odd book in the Old Testament. Um, and it talks about how the impermanence, the impermanence of our lives actually fuels our striving, our grasping for permanence. Our impermanence fuels that. And, and the, um, the writer of Ecclesiastes actually says, uh, some of you have heard this, Vanity of vanity, all is vanity, he says in his odd book. In other words, it's, it's all impermanent. And our lives are marked by an almost, honestly, it's almost comical how we strive for permanence. We try to grasp something that we can't hold on to in our pleasures, in our work, in our achievements. So faced with death, our own and the people we love, what do we do? How should we think about death? Is there a healthy and honest way that's not morbid that we can actually take this topic and consider it? And I think, that start, I think the answer is yes, otherwise I wouldn't be here. Uh, and I think it starts with getting God's perspective on death. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at this absolutely amazing chapter. We're going to read a whole chapter of Scripture. So yes, put on your seatbelt and your and your uh, bicycle helmets, uh, a whole chapter. We're, I'm going to read it in chunks. I'm going to make some comments in between, and then I'm going to make some points at the end, and then we can go home. Wonderful passage. But I'm going to pray first. So pray with me, please. So Lord, we, um, we're here, God, and you know, as we always say here, no one's here by accident. And we know that we're all here in, in different places with you. And uh, what that means is some of us, we know you very well. You're, you're a big part of our lives. Others of us, Lord, we're, we're on the fringe. We're kind of looking in. We're not really sure if we want to leap into the pool. Uh, others of us are really tired. We're weary. Others of us are grieving. Uh, and Lord, maybe most of us, we're just so distracted. So Lord, we ask you for a miracle. We ask you to, uh, as you've already started doing today, take, take this time and use it and move us toward you uh, and give us hope. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I'm going to read from uh, John chapter 11. And uh, for the sec first section of this, I'm going to ask you to stand for the gospel reading out of reverence for God's word, a little spiritual aerobics. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Um, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. And that scene is actually in the next chapter, but the assumption is we know that story uh, of Mary who put the... Uh, anointed Jesus' feet. Um, anyway, Lazarus is ill. So the sisters sent to him, sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, 
He whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? If you read a few chapters before this happens, that, that's the case. Uh, Jesus' public ministry has gotten a lot of uh, rivalry with the religious leaders, and they actually did try to stone him and the disciples, uh, throw rocks at them. That's what that stoning means. Uh, uh, a few chapters before this. So this, yeah, don't, um, are you going there again? So Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. So the disciples are like us, by the way. A lot of times they don't get what Jesus is saying. It says, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also so that we may die with him. You may be seated. So immediately we see one thing that uh, we need to have this sink in a little bit for us this morning. We see that being Jesus' friend does not exempt us from suffering. Just because you're a friend of Jesus does not mean you're not going to suffer. Uh, being Jesus' friend does not exempt us from suffering, from, from tragedy, and, and even from death. The disciples were right to be afraid to go back to Judea. They were right to be afraid. Uh, it was dangerous for them. Um, I did this in the morning service, and I don't know if anybody laughed at that time, but you have to indulge me for just uh, 10 seconds. When I read the Gospels, I picture that at least one of the disciples is a native New Yorker. I, picture, I think it's Peter, actually. He seems... He seems the most, the most uh, Brooklyn of all the disciples, actually. So I picture, you know, in this translation it says, Lord, don't you know it's dangerous for us to go back there? You know, I picture Peter or one of the disciples going, going Jesus, are you, are you nuts? The last time we were there, they were throwing rocks at us. Are you crazy? Dangerous over there. You want us to go back there. But Jesus says, yeah, we're going to go back. Two, two odd things in this passage. One, Jesus seems to contradict himself, doesn't he? He says that Lazarus' illness will not end in death, but then he says Lazarus has died. And then he delays. I want to talk about the delay for a second. Why, why delay, Jesus? Why not, as soon as you hear that your friend, not just a stranger, not just somebody seeking help, your friend is sick. Why not immediately, hey, I'm on it, we're going. 
He delays. Is he testing the sisters with his delay? Or worse, is he waiting for Lazarus to die? I think the best way to see this delay is that Jesus is going to show up when it will most benefit his friends. Jesus is going to show up when it will most benefit his friends, not just when he is invited. He's going to show up when it most benefits his friends. And he specifies what that means here, that his delay will be for the benefit of his followers that they may believe. Now, this word believe in the Gospel of John is is shorthand for a full self-commitment to Jesus. That's, That's what believe means. It's not just here. It's a full self. What it means is, is I'm all in life commitment, life orientation to Jesus. You know what's interesting? In John's entire gospel, the word belief, or it's never used as a, or faith, it's never used as a noun. John never talks of, of a belief or the, it's always believing. It's a verb. To John, it's a verb which I think points to the dynamic view of believing. But wait a second, so that you might believe, wait, wait, Jesus, who are you talking to? Aren't these guys already believers? Isn't he already talking to people who believe? Well, he is. And I think the message, and more on this later, but the message right now is that with Jesus, there is always more. Believing in Jesus is an active, growing dynamic relationship that always has more to it. And I can relate to these guys. They're reluctant because it's dangerous. But they're, they're going to go. And Thomas, Thomas you probably know from, I'm not going to believe until I see the scars in his hand, the holes in his feet and hands. That's the Thomas here. We're going to talk a little bit more about him later. The realist. So I'm going to continue in our passage It says, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, My brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. So Jesus shows up. Lazarus has already been dead four days. And um, in the first century rabbinical teaching, what that meant, they, they taught that... Um, Somebody died and their spirit hovered around the body for three days and then departed. So here we are now, Lazarus has been dead uh, four days, so he's technically what we would call really dead. And there's a crowd. It seems that Lazarus 
and, and his sisters were popular. Um, there's a big crowd there. Also, at that time, do you know they hired mourners? It was like a service you paid for because, you know, you want, hey, this is a big, you know, we want like extra criers. Yeah, believe it or not, extra wailers there at the funeral. You actually hired them along, you know, with the flowers and the hearse. You get, you get wailers. That's the way it worked. Um, uh, so they were popular. And I'm sure that Mary and Martha probably were subjected to the same things that, um, the same well-meaning and unhelpful things that we a lot of times hear at funerals and wakes. And I know that I've said my fair share of them. Well-meaning, but usually not very helpful. I imagine that um, if you know Mary and Martha too, uh, some of you, something's clicking in your minds. Hey, we, we know this. We know this pair of sisters. We know them from Luke's gospel. There's a vignette in Luke chapter 10. Uh, Mary and Martha, Martha uh, Jesus is teaching Martha is concerned with getting basically supper on the table, and Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet listening to the teaching, and Jesus tells uh, Martha in, in Luke chapter 10, hey, Martha, you, you're concerned with too much. Mary's chosen the better thing to listen to God's word. Uh, and this portrayal seems to be consistent with this. Martha's practical. She comes out to meet Jesus, and she starts her conversation with him with a statement. Lord, if you had been here... My brother would not have died. Is it an accusation? I don't think so. Because of what comes after. Because she says, even now, I know it. Whatever you ask from God, God will give you. You know, Martha has experience with God, with Jesus, with his ministry. Uh, she's not only heard him teach, she's, she's watched him do things that no one else has been able to do. She has seen this rabbi heal people. She has seen him cast out unclean spirits from people. She's probably seen or at least heard him feed the 5,000 with a few loaves of bread and a few fish. So she knows. And Jesus answers her, your brother will rise again. I have to say this, though. Martha doesn't quite get it. Um, doesn't quite understand. So here's what she does. She makes an impeccably true theological statement. This is like right out of seminary. She says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And she's correct. She is spot on. But she's missing something. She's thinking future. Jesus is saying now. Resurrection? I am the resurrection and the life. You know, when you read the Gospel of John, you have to be, you know, pay attention. Uh, Jesus has a number of I am statements. And what Jesus is doing in those statements, like, I am the bread of life. Um, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am. What he's doing in that is he's alluding back to Exodus, where, where God revealed himself to Moses. And Moses said, who, sh who should we say, what's your name, God? What's, and that's when God said what? He said, I am. Jesus is saying, I am. I am the resurrection and the life. I am. Look under your nose, Martha. It's right in front of you. You know, I can relate to Martha. i got to be honest with you. I can relate to her because I know a lot of stuff, right? I've read the Bible for a number of years. I've even taken classes, right? Got a lot of stuff up here about the Bible and about God. Um, and I gotta be, it's, sometimes it's hard to translate that into life. Martha knew stuff, but here Jesus is standing in front of her, and she's missing something. You know, the idea that Jesus is available right now. He's available right now. 
that, that escapes me sometimes. It escapes me. I have a lot of, lot of this. Some of you are the same way, I think. You, you know a lot. You've been in church a long time. But the idea that, uh, you, that God is right here available for you now, I think is hard to grasp. So I continue in the passage. It said, when she, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he is, uh, he's calling for you. And when Mary heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there, and, and they didn't want her to be alone. That's a, that's a cool thing. You know, their idea was if somebody's grieving, you, you stay with them. Um, so when Jesus saw her weeping, uh, oh, sorry. Uh, now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And here we have the shortest verse, right? This is the trivia, answer to the trivia question. The shortest verse in the Bible, it's Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? It seems that Mary's question is the same as Martha's, isn't it? If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Haven't we all asked the same question to, to God at certain times in a certain way? Um, God, if you had showed up, things would be different. Maybe my marriage would be intact. Maybe um, my father wouldn't have died of cancer. I'm familiar with this. I buried both my parents. I prayed for my dad when he, when he got cancer, and he, he did die. Close to home here at Gateway, uh, one of our elders, Tom Bellino, we prayed for him. Uh, and he was taken by an aggressive form of cancer not that long ago. It leaves a hole. And I think you all know what that feels like. Anyone that's tracked at all with God, you know what that feels like to say, God, if you had only shown up, things would be different. We can identify with Mary. You know, when I read this, I wonder, why, why did John include this part? I mean, obviously it happened, it's true, but we know the gospel writers, they were selective. And here's what I mean by that. They had to pick and choose because the book can only be so big. Even John's gospel at the end, John actually has a statement in the last chapter that says, you know, if I, if I wrote down every miracle Jesus did, the world wouldn't be big enough for that size book. So, so why include this piece? In other words, why not go from Martha's impeccable theological statement, which was absolutely true, why not go from that and then go right to the raising of Lazarus? Did anyone notice that Jesus didn't wait for Mary to come to him? That just like the father in the story of the prodigal son, Jesus goes looking for Mary. He knows that Lazarus' death has hit her hard. 
And it says that she immediately gets up. Another way to translate this is that she was raised up. You, you see where this is going? Some of you caught that. You know, the Greek word behind that raised up, and, and the New Testament was written originally in Greek. This is our English translation we're looking at today. The Greek word for, her, for, for get up is egerthe. That's in the Greek. It's the same word used in Matthew, Mark, and Luke to describe Jesus' resurrection. Jesus knows that Mary needs raising. She needs raising. What's the difference between the question Mary asked and the one that Martha, uh, Martha versus Mary? It's the same question. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. The exception is Mary throws herself at Jesus' feet. Why would she do that? Was it out of grief? Maybe that's where she was used to being, the student at the feet of the master, listening to him teach. What I think we hear in Mary is raw honesty. If you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus has an odd reaction. I think it's really strange. It's really, it says Jesus, Jesus cries. The shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Why is he crying? He knows what he's going to do. He came there for that purpose. He told the disciples, I'm going to go raise this man. I'm going to undead him. I just made that word up. That's what I'm going to do. So why, if he knows he's going to do that, if he knows that, hey, it's all going to be okay in the end, why does he cry? Why is he so affected by Mary's grief that he himself can't help but weep? Can I, can I say this to you? Some of you, some of us, our image of God, our image of Jesus is so exalted. Uh, our Jesus is so, is so majestic and aloof. Our image of God is he's so large and in charge that he can't, he can't understand our grief. I think Jesus shows us that that is not true and we need to change our perspective. You know, the writer of the book of Hebrews, another New Testament book, actually says something like this. He says, we don't have a high priest, meaning Jesus. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way as we are. In other words, Jesus knows. He knows. If your heart is broken, he knows. He understands the full range of human experience because he has lived it. He knows. I think he also may be weeping at something else. I think he may be weeping at the sheer scope of what death has done to humanity. He's weeping at the sheer scope of what death has done to humanity. Isaiah 25 is this great passage. It describes death as the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. In other words, that's the black cloud over all of us. That's the, the solidarity that we all share. And we just can't get away from it. Even if you try to ignore it and not think about it, it will eventually catch you and those that you love. Uh, Jesus, Jesus knows it has held humanity hostage for thousands of years ever since our first parents decided that they didn't want to follow God. So here we see a Jesus perspective on death. You ready? Death is not natural. Sometimes we get that idea, right? Circle of life, right? Circle of life. No, no, put Simba down. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not natural. Death is not natural. Uh, death was never meant to be part of God's plan. Death is an intruder. Death that rips the fabric of families apart. 
and ends promptly. No, no, it is not. It is not natural. It is not. I felt this again to bring up the Tom Bellino when we, we had a service for him and you know, all the people are saying beautiful things about him because he was a beautiful man, but I couldn't help but think, this is wrong. There's something wrong about this. There's something deeply, deeply wrong about this. Death is not natural. It was never meant to be part of God's plan. So what is our proper response to it? Jesus shows us. It's tears. You know, Jesus does not scold Mary for her grief. He enters into it. Some of you may remember when Jesus gave his Sermon on the Mount, you know, the blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek. One of them was, blessed are they who mourn, for they will be comforted. It has a promise in it. If you mourn, you will be comforted. The proper human response to death is grief, grief and tears. And our tears are a protest against a world where death affects us all. And Jesus, fully human, enters into this part of being human, of being, some of you remember from the Old Testament, he shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. In other words, that he enters in, into our grief with his promise that ultimately he will be comforted. I'm going to read on. It says, then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Deeply moved again. This is the strongest expression of emotion in the Gospels. And if this were a movie, this is where the music would stop. You know, readers of John's gospel have noticed that the, uh, John organized his gospel around seven, seven miracles or signs, he calls them, starting with the wedding of, uh, uh, wedding of Cana, the water into wine, in chapter 2, um, the feeding of the 5,000. Well, this is the last, this is the seventh sign um, that is recorded that Jesus is doing. You know, we have to look at this. Jesus is getting into, you ready for this? He's getting into battle formation. You ever think of Jesus as a warrior? He is going to take on that which has destroyed his kids, his family, his friends, us, for thousands of years. He's getting into battle formation. And then he says it. He says, take away the stone. The crowd cannot believe this. Take away the stone? Jesus, don't you understand? He's really dead, right? Four days? He's really dead in there, Jesus. Don't, don't you? Wait, and what kind of rabbi are you? Don't you know we, if we get involved with a dead body, we're ceremonial unclean? We're, we're going to taint ourselves? Don't you? Jesus, Lazarus is dead. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And listen to this. Listen to what Jesus did. It says, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice. And here's what he said. Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hand and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. 
Do you understand what just happened? Do you get it? Jesus, Jesus looked death in the face and gave him a bloody nose because within a week, they were going to be face to face again. And then somehow by surrendering to death, Jesus was going to defeat him for good. And I thought of a violent metaphor that some of you may be offended by. Okay, this is a precursor. This is a foreshadowing of within a few days, Jesus was going to meet death in a dark alley and was going to stomp him. For us. For us. So that we don't have to be afraid when we face death because we know it's not the end. He did it for us. Within a few weeks after this scene, Jesus would be arrested, tortured, and nailed to a wooden stake by Roman soldiers. His body would be wrapped in burial clothes and sealed in a cave, just like Lazarus. It was probably going through his head as he's doing this. He's thinking, that's going to be me in there. And like Lazarus, he would walk out of the grave a few days after being put in there. And because he walked out of his grave, we're going to walk out of ours. Can I get an amen? That's our hope. Jesus is alive. He's here. He's available. He offers his life to anyone who, who believes in him. To anyone. So that's our question today that hangs over our head. Are you believing in him? Do you believe in him? You know, in the passage that we read, uh, Martha says there's a bad odor, right? Je you don't want to go in there, Jesus. There, that, there's a bad odor in there. And I have to be reminded when I read that, of, um, you know, I like, to, I like to work out a little bit. Uh, some of you are laughing right now. Um, he does not look like he works out. But, um, yeah, I like to go to the gym and, you know, lift some weights sometimes. And, um, you know, sometimes, um, uh, shall I say, that uh, I become a bit uh, odiferous and aromatic while at the gym. And I, I bring that home with me. And I'm reminded by the people that live in my house that um, you don't smell good. Martha says there's a bad odor. I like the, the King James version of this, actually, uh, which was translated some, some years ago. And the King James version, uh, she says it this way. She says, he stinketh. He stinketh. I know what that's like. I go to the gym, and I come home, and I stinketh. And guess what? We all stinketh. We all stinketh. All of us have the, the smell of death on us. And unless Jesus brings you to life, you will remain in your death stink. So are you believing in him? Have you put your trust in him? So some final thoughts. We recognize that we live in the time of the great delay. We live in the time of the great delay. What that means is, uh, in Jesus, Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension started something. Jesus started a revolution on this planet. 2,000 years ago, and he's not done. He's not done. We're in the great delay. We're in the time of groaning. God has started something he's not done yet. The time of groaning. You know, Paul talks about this in his letter to the Romans in chapter 8. He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly 
as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. We groan. This is the time we live in. So knowing that, it, I think it helps us face some hard realities. Things are not going to be perfect here. Uh, we're going to die. People we love are going to die, and we will grieve. But we will not grieve like those who have no hope. Our tears will be protest, tears of protest against the fallen world. We live in the time of the great delay. Um, the other thing I was thinking of is uh, now is a time to, to train for resurrection. We begin to train for resurrection. What does that mean? It's almost like I had this thought. Uh, some of you know that in my former life I was, uh, I was a customs inspector at JFK Airport. And um, one, of my, one of my jobs was I would, I would look at luggage, people's, open people's luggage. And some of you are thinking, oh, you're one of those guys. No, I used to do that. So don't throw anything at me. All right. Um, plus, I can always blame. That's TSA. Uh, I was customs. Open up the bag, what do people have, and all kinds of things we'd see in the luggage. Uh, we would see things like food, all kinds of exotic food, uh, people bringing that from the homeland. We would see, um, um, okay, right, body parts, yeah, it's actually uh, anything, drugs, anything you can imagine in a suitcase, people would have it. It would be interesting, though, is we could tell where people were coming from based on what was in the luggage. In other words, they packed for their destination. We need to start packing for our destination if we haven't done that already. And what is our destination? It's resurrection. It's resurrection. Well, what about death, John? Mm -mm. That's just a stopover. That's like if I need to go from here to Rome and I have to stop at Newark. That's a stopover. That's a layover. That's not, death is not my destination. Resurrection is my destination. So we start to train for that now. How do we do that? We saturate ourselves with the truth of Jesus' resurrection. That becomes the bedrock fact of our lives and also the truth of our own resurrection. We saturate ourselves until it runs out of our pores. For those who are believing in Jesus, we're promised an indestructible life that begins now. It begins now. You know, we're the only people on earth that have this hope. Christians are the only ones that have this hope. Out of every worldview and every religion and every way of looking at life, we're the only ones that have this hope. How do we do this? How do we start doing this? We read the New Testament and we recognize that resurrection is in every book. And we recognize that our believing rests on resurrection. You know, the Apostle Paul says that if Jesus is not raised, then we're to be pitied. Our faith is useless, he says. But if Jesus has been raised, then we too will be raised. And just as Jesus raised Lazarus and God raised Jesus, we too, we too will be raised. So our resurrection, it, it starts now. We train for it now. And the third thing I want to talk about real quickly is... Uh, we also acknowledge that Jesus is, he's always bigger than we think. He's always bigger than we think. Martha thought that she knew Jesus. She sat at his feet. She saw his miracles. She thought that she knew Jesus. And she did, but not all of him. She knew him as the anointed rabbi, which he was, but uh, it took her some time to realize, he's, no, he's the resurrection and the life. Some of you have known Jesus for decades. Can I say this? You're only scratching the surface. 
You're only scratching the surface of who he is. He is much bigger, much bigger than you think. And because of that, it's impossible to give him too much of your time. Jesus, that name should be the first word we utter in the morning and the last word on our lips before we sleep. Jesus is always bigger than we think. Are you believing in Jesus today? Is this real? I'm going to ask the worship uh, group to come up. What I want to do in our last couple minutes is I want to hold up this passage like a mirror. We're going to look at a few people in this passage. Maybe one of them is you. You know, some of us are like Thomas. Remember Thomas, the twin? Jesus, I'm going to go, but uh, that's really dangerous there. You know, commentators have noticed, uh, you know, Thomas means twin, and it seems to point to his double mind on things. And we know Thomas was the one, again, who's like, you know, oh, yeah, Jesus, I'll believe. I'll believe in his resurrection when I see it. Um, I think Thomas was a Northern Virginian. I think he was a show-me kind of guy. I think he was, he was look, I'm, I'm about the facts. I want the facts. I'm a super realist. If you're like Thomas, Jesus is calling your name today. He's calling your name today. He wants to reveal himself in your life. Others of us are like Mary. We're depressed. Or maybe, you know what? Maybe we're disappointed with God because he hasn't shown up how we thought he should. And you know what? Disappointment only comes with expectation and trust. In other words, atheists do not get disappointed in God. You have to trust somebody before they can disappoint you. You have to have expectations first. And you have, you have given God the power to disappoint you, and you, you feel disappointed. He hasn't shown up the way you've expected. Or maybe, maybe you're one of those, you've just grown bored. You're bored. Even this, 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 all you hear is blah, blah, blah. You're just bored. And you can't get up. You're Mary. And just like he went looking for Mary, Jesus is looking for you today. He's calling your name today. And you need a raising up. You need a mini-resurrection today. And he's calling your name. And others of us, we're like Lazarus. You've heard Jesus call your name, and you're alive. You said yes to Jesus. You're, you're believing. You're believing. But you're still wearing the grave clothes, right? And you know, the way that would happen is they, would, they, were, almost like, they were almost like pasted on bodies. And and that's how you are right now. You can't get rid of the grave clothes. And what is that for you? Maybe it's a habit. It's something from your old life. Maybe, it's, it's, maybe it is grief. Maybe it's something that you just can't shake. Your old life is sticking to you. Do you notice in our passage that Jesus commanded those around Lazarus to help him? So what does that mean? That means that you, you need help to get the grave clothes off. Christianity was never meant to be a solo act. Never meant to be. So you can start. We're going to have some people down by my right at the prayer sign. If, you, if, you, if you're in that position where you're like, you know what, I just, the grave clothes are on me and I need some help. I need that off of me. So please help me. They'll, they'll lift you up to God. So are you believing today? Are you believing? 
Stand with me, please. And let's pray. Lord, we read this story, and um, I know for some of us it's just, it's almost too good to be true because we know that you could have, you didn't have to do this, God. You didn't have to come looking for us. Um, you could have just left the planet. You could have said, you know what? You don't want me, just kill each other. You could have said that. You could have just left us to our own devices. But you couldn't do that, could you? You had to invade us. Because you knew that we needed life, and you're the only source of it. So we're, we're amazed, God. Who are we? I mean, who are we? Lord, I think you've spoken to at least some of us today, and I pray you, you would help, help us to take those next steps, whatever they are. In Jesus' name.